Hey folks, thanks for listening to Call Sheet. Just a heads up, after today's episode, we'll be taking a brief hiatus for the month of October, coming back at the beginning of November. I'll be on set, traveling for production over the next few weeks, while Kiku holds down the fort overseeing cuts of our next episodes and recording some amazing new interviews that you'll hear very soon. Some topics to look forward to are working with background, safety meetings, children and animals on set, and all about prop weapons and working with an armorer. In the meantime, we'd love if you tune in to us on social. We're at Call Sheet Show on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to staying connected, and we'll talk to you all real soon. Enjoy this episode. I think that's part of the reason why I've really enjoyed being in the AD department is that some people maybe don't think of it as being a creative role because it's just logistics. But you have to be creative in the way that the logistics are implemented and be able to deal with hey, guess what? The generator is not starting or there's a storm coming or this person just called in sick or this actor just didn't wake up because their alarm didn't turn on or whatever it may be. And having to creatively think through that as a team is it's a challenge, but it's also very rewarding. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Call Sheet, a podcast about film production and the boots on the ground work of below the line crew. If you work in physical production in any department, this show's for you. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back, folks. Once again, we're your hosts, Bryce Sirier and Kiku Terasaki. Hey there, Kiku. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. I'm excited for our guest today. Today, we're going to talk about how to stay organized during production. We'll hit on set paperwork, communication with cast and crew, and what to look for when hiring your team. Our guest is also going to give great insight into how to join the DGA as an assistant director. A lot of great organizational and leadership principles in this conversation. So no matter what department you work in, there are certainly going to be tons of takeaways for managing well on set and in the office. So, to introduce our guest, today on the show we're talking to DGA 2nd AD Ian Campbell. Most recently, Ian was 2nd AD on the Reno 911 reboot for Quibi and the Zac Efron-helmed Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. He's also seconded various indie features, including The Public, written and directed by Emilio Estevez, and the obituary of Tundi Johnson, which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. I'm really excited to hear about Ian's wide range of experiences. Welcome to the show, Ian. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, man. We're really excited to uh, hear your insights and your perspectives. I think a great place to start uh, would just be understanding how you got started in the business. You know, what was your big break or career moment and how you came to do what you do as a key second? Well, it was kind of a long path to get to seconding. But as far as breaking in, it's a strange story. I actually got in as a participant on a reality TV show uh, called Going Hollywood. And uh, I answered an email query I got while I was still in college. I went to the University of North Texas and studied radio, television, film. And uh, it basically, the email just said, do you want to be an intern in Hollywood? I was like, yeah, because I knew nobody. And uh, nothing really came of it. I ended up getting another job outside of the industry. And I was here in Texas, basically working in a call center. And uh, got a response from this email and followed the, pulled that thread to see where it led and went through this long casting process and ultimately ended up shooting this show for TLC. Went out and was an intern for um, Dana Bernetti, who was president of Trigger Street Productions, uh, Kevin Spacey's production company. And at the end of that process, um, he offered me a job and I stayed on and worked there for three years. Wow. Did you feel like you got a complete immersion experience? I, I actually didn't get that much exposure to production during the filming of the show itself. Um, I mean, I got a lot of exposure to reality TV um, and just how they do that. 
But um, given that wasn't something I was particularly interested in myself, I was just trying to make as good of a impression as I could, knowing that whatever I did could potentially be broadcasted to you know thousands of people across the country because I didn't want to embarrass myself. But the fact that that led to a job that was more of kind of development related, I, I thought of at that point in my career, I wanted to be a director and, and being able to be around a producer and other, other producers besides Dana really helped me to see that there's a lot more to the process than just that figurehead role of directing. And it kind of ignited in me a, a, a desire to learn more about physical production. So that's how I ultimately got onto the production path after my tenure at Trigger Street, jumped into PA work and kind of worked my way up from there. So take us farther down that path. When did you realize ADing was something that you wanted to do? And how did you approach the question of whether to join the union or not? And at at what point in your career? So I I thought production would be a great place to be just because longer term, I want to produce. I still want to do that. And I felt like getting a chance to see how people with the boots on the ground actually make the product could only help. And just knowing what year is used, what crew members do what. And so that was what drove the decision to even get into production to begin with. But um, obviously the first step is being a PA and I, I did that. I had the pleasure of working with a, an AD by the name of Justin Muller, who was just a fantastic first AD, had uh, a lot of respect for him and he was very kind. Early on, I said, you know what? I, I really feel like I, I could be a, an AD. I think I have what it takes personality wise and my skill set. I think would be complimentary to the, to the role what do you think? What should I do? And I'd heard people talking about, well, you could put together all these PA days or you can be an indie AD. And he said something that, that I've really held on to all these years was just that well, if you want to do the job, being an indie AD is a good way to do it because you have to wear a lot of different hats. And there's not really a lot of difference between the job on an indie and a bigger studio project other than you have more time and more resources on the bigger projects to deal with problems when they come up. So if you can do it at a lower level, you should be able to do it at a higher level as well. And you have the added benefit of being able to get exposure to so much more than you would otherwise as far as responsibility as a, as a PA. So I took that to heart and just tried to kind of get into those roles wherever I could. But to the question of DGA or non-DGA, for me, DGA was always the way that I wanted to go because I felt like the rate was something that was desirable and the health insurance and everything else. I'm married. I've got kids. so. I knew to get to the DGA, you have to get there one of two ways. You can either collect, I think it's 600 PA days, or you can come in by collecting non-union AD days. Living in the third area is what they call it if you're outside of New York or LA. Um, it takes, I think it's 120 days to get on the list, the qualification list as a second AD. And so I, I think I did two jobs, uh, studio jobs uh, as a PA. And then I got a call from an independent feature and they were looking for a key set PA and they didn't have a second, second AD budgeted. And I just said, Hey, I'm cool if you pay me the same rate, but uh, can you call me a second, second? And funny enough with that title came along a lot of the responsibilities that you would have as an AD otherwise. And uh, I'd, I'd never PA it again after that. I just kind of parlayed that into other jobs. So I got on the list initially qualification list uh, in the third area as a second AD using just 80, 80 days that I'd accumulated. Uh, I continued to work before having an opportunity to do any kind of DGA jobs. I still kept working indies as a second AD, collecting those days. I upgraded on the list to first AD. And even though I wasn't doing the work as a first, I could then was eligible to get those jobs. And so the first offer I got for DGA employment was for a movie that shot in Kentucky, which at the time was called Monumental. 
they changed the title before it came out to Better Start Running, a uh, quirky little indie with starring Jeremy Irons and a great ensemble cast. And uh, lucky enough, I had that that ability to do firsting as well because our, our first AD jumped after a, a few weeks of production to go after another opportunity and I was able to bump up on my first DGA job. That's awesome. Can, can you speak a little more to the specific documents one needs to collect in order to prove your day's work, essentially? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give the caveat that I'm by no means an expert on the process. For anyone out there who is wanting to know more about how to get in, there's the DGA and there's DGA East, which is in New York, and also what they call the third area list, which is anywhere outside of New York or LA, is covered by the, the DGA Contracts Administration Office in LA. So both of those organizations have their own websites with a lot of helpful information. But um, as far as being able to work, to be eligible, you have to be on a qualification list in most cases. You gather your days and for each job that you do, you have to have five things. You have to have your pay stubs, you have to have deal memo, you have to have crew list, you have to have copies of your call sheet and your production report. And so it's a little onerous trying to collect all that paperwork, but once you have it, that's how you prove to the DGA that you've actually worked the days that you're saying that you worked. Yeah, and to, to clarify, that means that you had days on features or television, Correct. right? Features or television as an assistant director. On scripted narrative shows. Exactly. Thanks for walking us through that. Uh, we'll definitely put some links in this episode's show notes that our listeners can check out if they want to do a deeper dive into the qualification requirements to join the union. I'd love for you to speak in general about how you view your role as second AD and the contribution that you make to the success of the overall project. I, I do think something about being a second AD is that it really is a linchpin role. And so that can be a lot of pressure sometimes because there's a lot of information that flows through your emails and your phone and you're responsible for disseminating that. And if you happen to have an off day, and maybe you're not feeling 100% or in the wrong headspace, uh, you know, things can go bad and it can be your fault. So it's, uh, there definitely is some pressure, but I think kind of chasing that adrenaline, it's, it's very fulfilling if it goes well. Just the stamina that it takes and the, the attention to detail that it takes is amazing. It can wear on you after a while because more often than not, I am the first one there and I'm the last one to leave. And the job doesn't end when I leave. You know, there's still calls and emails and depending on, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, that can be more extensive than other shows. But I've, I've been on those shows where you work, you know, 14 or 15 hour day, and then you've got another hour and a half or two hours of, of just, you know, cleanup work that you're doing emails and phone calls. And, and, and I might even carry over into the weekends. So it's not always that way, but it, it happens frequently enough that it's a kind of a regular thing. You've said that the second AD is the nexus of information on set, right? Much like the production coordinator is the nexus of information in the office. Can you talk more about that and how you facilitate effective communication and problem solving from your standpoint as a second? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I, I do agree that, that being the second AD uh, is very similar to the production coordinator role as far as the flow of information information will come kind of from the top down from uh, producers or production supervisor, production manager, and it has to be disseminated out to the crew in some form or fashion. Obviously there's memos and emails that can go out, but a lot of the face-to-face -face conversation that happens about the day-to-day -day operations on set, it's coming from uh, the AD team to the rest of the crew. And so a lot of times I find myself being the one who's relaying those messages and, and granted there's going to be feedback in those conversations that comes from the crew. So it's like if there's an issue or an upcoming 
something that, that there's concern about, you know, it's having those one-on-one face-to-face conversations with people or even just group emails and then getting that feedback and consolidating it, and relaying it back in a way that's palatable and also not like a mile long email. And so it is challenging and it's also just, it's incessant, it's constant. So it never ends. And so just when you think you've got one thing fixed, someone else is saying, Hey, I, I got a problem now too. And so it's just trying to keep track of it all sometimes can be a challenge. Yeah. You have to sort of like having multiple balls in the air and getting them down successively. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that variety is definitely nice. And I think it's, if, if it's not something that you truly love and enjoy, it is a hard lifestyle and there are always the multiple plates spinning and not just related to the job. It's, it's future jobs too, that you're trying to figure out. Right. But I think you have to have quite a tolerance for uncertainty. 100%. Yes. I think just in general, uh, in this lifestyle, yes, but just day to day, I mean, that's the name of the game is uncertainty. It, it's constant change and it's adaptability and it's being able to think on the fly and come up with solutions in the moment. Yeah. That's the fun of it. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I've really enjoyed being in the AD department is that some people maybe don't think of it as being a creative role because it's just logistics, but you have to be creative in the way that the logistics are implemented and be able to deal with, Hey, guess what? The generator is not starting or there's a storm coming or this person just called in sick or this actor just didn't wake up because their alarm didn't turn on or whatever it may, may be. And having to creatively think through that as a team is it's a challenge, but it's also very rewarding. Yeah, I also think you have to understand the creative intent of, you know, the script as it's being executed so that you can be alert to what's important, what's, you know, a key moment. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I think, I mean, it's in it's in the title. We're assistant directors. And I think that the our department exists to serve the vision uh, and function as support for the director in execution of their vision. Um and so in some cases, maybe if it's, a, if it's a newer director, the first AD is working with them and helping them figure out exactly what some of those things are through asking questions and, and probing. Um, and then it's that communication interdepartment to make sure that on the day, those things that the director feels so strongly about are there for them, all the elements that they need to craft a performance in the picture that they, they want to have. How do you handle balancing all the aspects of your work? I think this would be a great opportunity to kind of highlight any any systems or checklists that you have for staying organized with all of these responsibilities? For me, the, the, that process begins in prep. I have a prep checklist that I've just generated over the many shows that I've done. And I, it started with just basically taking some time after a show is done and just thinking through like, well, what are the things that I do every single show? You know, uh, the questions that I asked the UPM, the questions I asked the production coordinator, like, you'll find from show to show that, that roles and responsibilities may be similar. Sometimes they're different. So on some, in some cases, the production manager wants paperwork a certain way and they want it done differently on a different show. So instead of assuming, I just created a checklist of like the questions that I would want answers to. And then, uh, and then day to day, I've got similar, similar pro- processes as well. As far as I've got just some spreadsheets that I kind of make for each show that I know I know staffing is going to change in the grip and electric department. They're, they're going to do a man counter that says I need, you know, three extra grips on this day and three extra juicers on this day and whatever the case might be. And then the schedule changes. So that information is constant and it comes in different forms. You know, the grips are going to have their calendar look one way. The electrics are going to have their own calendar looking a different way. And the art department has theirs different. So I just kind of synthesize and consolidate all that information to my own spreadsheet. 
that I can quickly reference. And I, I will still check with each department every day. Like, hey, you know, do you still have two additional people tomorrow? Do you have their names? And it might have changed, but at least I kind of am going to them with some general idea as opposed to just nothing. For any uh, listeners who might not know, what does the second need all that information for? Well, it's just a matter of making the call sheet for the next day. It's basically my responsibility to take what the first AD has done in prep and scheduling out the, the whole shoot and translate that to a day-by-day instruction sheet, essentially, of when the cast members are showing up, when the crew is showing up and where, and any other departmental notes that are important for everyone to know have to be on that call sheet. And that includes you know, the number of crew that are going to be there from each department, just so there's a correct accounting of who actually worked. But, uh, but you know, you, I'm kind of a perfectionist, and I, I want to make that call sheet as, as accurate as I can. Who could be better than to ask you, Ian, how do you look at the call sheet? What is it about that piece of paper that's so important? Well, it's basically the skin and bones of your day. The first AD does a strip board, and they've got a broader shooting schedule. But as far as being able to quickly look at those documents and figure out what's going on, it's like, okay, well, here's the high-level overview of what the day looks like in the strip board. Shooting schedule has very specific details by scene, but if you want to quickly just be able to look at just the day's work and have everyone working from the same playbook, that's your call sheet. So to me, it's, it's very important just because it's, it's the first step in getting everybody on the same page. But it's also important to know that it's not set in stone. It's a, it's a working document. And sometimes you actually do revisions and you might have a, a blue call sheet or a yellow call sheet or whatever the case might be. But sometimes it's just a matter of someone calling out over the over the walkie, like, hey, everybody, instead of going to scene 135, we're going to scene 75A. And then, you know, it's, but it's that sheet of paper that everyone has with them so that they can actually do that. And it just makes it easier for the AD team to disseminate information, say, okay, we finished this, we're moving on to this, uh, and just to guide the day. You said you're a perfectionist. What's a good call sheet, an Ian Campbell call sheet, look like versus a piece of shit call sheet? <laughs> Well, I think uh, I've, I've worked on my fair share of, of shows that um, have a lot of last minute changes. I've done, I've done, I've spent, you know, you spend three or four hours getting a prelim done before lunch and then you, you'd make tweaks after lunch and then you fly a call sheet in the day. Ideally is how it works. But I've, I've had many a, a show where, one show where it happened almost every single day, you know, you're in the final minutes of the day and like, hey, everything's changing. You know, maybe we're going to a whole new location and the whole day has changed or maybe it's just the order of things has changed or you know, any number of variables can come up. And so then you find yourself after the, the crew is wrapped and everyone's on their way home and you're redoing what took you all day to do, you're, you're doing in like half an hour. So I, you can't be too perfectionist in those situations because you got to get it out and, it, and there's going to be mistakes that happen and, and when you're doing things in a rush at the end of the day. But to me, a good call sheet is one where you've talked to every department to build it. You've gone back with people afterwards to say like, hey, this is what I have. Is there anything going on here that needs to be fixed? It's not just putting it out there for people to look at. It's actually actively trying to get feedback from the departments to make it as good as possible. And then taking information that maybe camera department gives you and says, oh, hey, we need this thing. And then it's making sure locations knows, oh, hey, you know, we're going to have a crane here this day or whatever the case might be. It's not just putting on a sheet and assuming everyone's going to read it because let's face it, they don't. It's using that as the impetus for conversations and then using that information and spreading it out to those people who need to know it. Tell us about the production report and how important it is, you know, as a legal document. Yep. I mean, I've worked on the a full gamut of shows. I've worked on the shows where literally if I hadn't made the production report uh, and given that to production, they wouldn't have asked for it. They probably never would have cared. 
because it was just small or, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't on their list. Um, and I've been on the show that's on the complete opposite end where someone from the, the studio is going through line by line and giving detailed line by line notes about every single little thing. So it really, um, it's kind of knowing your audience. Um, but you're, you're, in any case, I, I personally feel like it is, it's an important document um, to have at the very least, if you're on the show that doesn't think you need a production report as an AD, you should still push to have one made because that's the document. One of the documents you're going to use to build your book that you turn into the, the guild to get on the respective lists. But beyond that, it is, it's important because, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've finished a show. I've been two or three weeks wrapped out. I might even be on a different show and someone calls me up and says, Hey, uh, we're, we're trying to deal with this inquiry about a paycheck or SAG has sent us a notice and they're asking about, there's a potential violation that happened on this day in relation to background, something or other. And like, I don't remember what it is. So I better hope that we did a good job on the PR because I'm going to have to go back and look at the notes, look at the day. Oh, oh yeah, that was the day that this happened. Okay, okay. Yeah, I can answer that question for you. So if you don't have that level of detail, you're going to be hurting later whenever someone has any kind of question. Yeah, I'm surprised that people didn't think they need one because it's a legal document. In other words, it's considered to be in a court proceeding, the record of what happened on that day. Yeah, it's surprising. I've been on, I think, maybe two or three productions where it was just like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, it's no big deal. Or or it was just like, yeah, as long as we have it by the end of the show, it's fine. It's like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to wait to try to do 20 production reports or 25 production reports all at, at once. Obviously, checking for accuracy is really important. Uh, who are you running the PR by before officially turning it into the office? So it'll depend uh, show by show on how they want to have that set to office process go. But generally what will happen is I will prep the template in the morning. And then um, usually how I like to run it, depending on who's second second, second second will most often be the one who closes set and they'll be finishing up the PR. So that at some point around draft, there'll be a handoff of that to them. And then depending on if I've worked with that second second or not before, um, I've been lucky to work with a few second seconds on multiple projects. We just already have a shorthand built in. And I know that once I've handed this document out to them and they finish it, they're good to go and hand it off to whoever the office wants it to go to. So sometimes the production manager will say, I want it to come to me first and then I'll disseminate it to whomever. But most commonly, I feel like it's the production manager, the coordinator, somebody from accounting, if not the whole accounting department, the first AD, and then usually producers involved too, but it just, again, it depends on the show. Sometimes it's a much smaller group, like just the, the production manager and the coordinator, and then they take care of distribution more widely once they've had a chance to go through and make updates as necessary. One question I, in that respect is, I have this uh, thing that I believe that there's an inherent tension between the production office and the set. And how one handles that is pretty important to just the day-to-day happiness of everybody. Um, what is your experience with that in terms of your relationship with the office versus the set? Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think in some of the experiences I've had that have not been as pleasant generally started as been that kind of butting heads with the office, but I will say, luckily, I feel like those types of experiences have been few and far between, um, and definitely the exception rather than the rule. I've been like blessed just to work with some really amazing office folks. I feel like the production coordinator is maybe the most thankless job in the entire industry. I've worked with, I've been lucky to work with a few who it's like, they just love what they do and they're really good at it. And so that makes, that makes all the difference. 
I think for me though, as far as just preventing that, trying to be really clear about setting the proper expectations up front, using that time and prep to build a really good rapport with the office because after once production starts, if you're on location, you may never see the office again. You might see a runner that comes a PA or something like that, but you might not see the production coordinator face to face at all until you wrap. Um, if you're on a stage, you might see them more frequently, but still it's, it's, I think it's crucial in the pre-stress times to have a conversation about what the expectations are and, and try to build as strong a relationship as you can. You and your department are the prime communicators to the actors and to the background performers. How do you look at that particular aspect of your job? To me, I think it's one of my favorite parts of the job, the cast, because I think especially if you're in a show uh, where you have a lot of recurring casts that are coming back. Um, oftentimes I'm the first person they see when they show up and I'm the last person they see when they leave. And so I have a, a way to immediately impact their morale. You know, if, if they show up and I'm in a good mood and I'm smiling and, you know, like you can set the stage for that. And if your actors are happy, you know, they tend to kind of steer the ship as far as the, the feeling, the mood on set. And so indirectly you can have a pretty big impact i think on just how people feel that things are going it goes the other way too if things are if you're on a, a poorly managed show uh which isn't always the 80 department or production's fault it can be a combination of factors but if things are going poorly you can kind of be the first face on not spinning it but just kind of being the the person to kind of talk someone off the ledge if they're having a tough day or whatever the case might be Ian, you'd mentioned on our pre-interview call a story from your early days, uh, a lesson you learned about communicating with cast. Do you want to go ahead and tell that story for the listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we all know that that things change frequently. And um, my very first time working as a key second AD, I just didn't realize like, oh, hey, I'm the sole point of contact for these actors uh, so when like, I was thinking, Oh, you know, casting takes care of that. Well, no, they hand off the, the actor to us and then it, they're in our care for the rest of the time. And so we had a schedule change. Um, and then I didn't think to just let everyone know, Hey, the schedule has changed. I was like, they're going to get their call sheet. And it was a low budget film. So on the side contract we were on, there wasn't consecutive employment. So on the days that the actors were off they're on their own program. They, they have their own, many of them had other jobs that they were going to. It's like, we've wrapped after a long day. I finally get the call sheet out and Chris calls me and she's like, hey, um, I wasn't scheduled to work tomorrow originally, but I see that I, I'm supposed to be there at this time and I have to work, you know, this is my job. And so I was like, oh, that, that, that was my job. I was supposed to tell you to, that, that the schedule changed. It was one, it was very embarrassing. Two, I basically was like, I'll call your job and explain the situation. It's totally my fault. I basically just owned it and said this was my fault. But it instilled in me uh, very quickly. I was like, hey, uh, I need to have a system in place to be able to track these changes and to be able to communicate them. So I have a what I call a master dude that I create at the beginning of each show. And for those who don't know, dude is an acronym for day out of days, right? Correct. Well, anytime there's a schedule change, I'll go in and actually mark out it on the original changes as they happen. Um, and it's just a way that I can visually see where changes happen. And then when I, I can communicate with actors and their reps, as well as the office in some cases help for them to know where things have changed. I'll just do a, a consolidated list that says from the blue data days to the, the next one, this is what's changed by cast number. And so it's just helped me to kind of stay on top of it 
cast members generally are very appreciative because they don't have to go searching through a grid of, a, of however many weeks it is and find their cast number and what days have, have changed. I just do, I do that summarization for them, but then also there's no surprises down the line whenever I send them a call sheet. They knew they were working that day before they get the, the call sheet. That's awesome. I think it's a, a great lesson learned. I love how, you know, you said you just owned it, uh, that you had made the mistake and you did what was needed to solve it. And then from that, you created a system to help prevent that mistake in the future. Exactly. Would you talk about who you supervise and what you look for when you are hiring? Yeah. So the, as far as the department is concerned, the first AD obviously is the head of the department. And then there's me as the key second AD. I have worked with a few firsts who want to have the second AD on set, which is kind of crazy <laughs> trying to try to be on set and also do everything else the second AD has to do. But usually the second AD is back in base camp and the second second is their right, right hand person. And then we have our key set PA who is that second seconds right hand person. And then you've got the team, which just depending on the budget of the project and size of the project will dictate, you know, is that key plus two, key plus three. Sometimes you got big days, lots of lockups, and you maybe have 10 PAs. It just depends. I think the biggest thing that I look for when I'm hiring somebody is just a, a good positive attitude. Because I feel like even where there's a lack of experience, if someone has the right mindset coming into it and if they're positive, uh, it goes a really long way to um, having a team that can get through any situation together. Also, I, I, people that are punctual, they are either on time or early. You know, you can t if someone shows up late to an interview, that's pretty much right off the bat a disqualifier, unless there's just extreme circumstances. I think pretty much anything else about the job, especially because it is an entry level job as a PA, can be taught. But if someone if, if someone comes in and they, you can just tell that they're eager to to learn, and they're coachable. Yes. Kiku, Ian, this has been such a great conversation. We've reached the point on the show where we do our Abby Singer segment. Ian, do you have a story or lesson learned you'd like to share that highlights something unique about your role in production? Yeah. Um, my first time PAing, uh, I was the walkie PA on Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. And we were shooting uh, a scene where there was a party happening in a house and the ghost of Christmas Past is taking our hero, played by Mac McConaughey, uh, down into a basement party to relive this thing that's happened in his past. And my job was to lock up sliding uh, door on the back of this house and um, never had never PA before in my entire life. And, uh, you know, they, I'd hear on the walkie that they're calling, rolling and cut and all these things. And I wouldn't let people like walk in the door if we were rolling, but I wasn't calling out the rolls and the cuts. because so I just didn't know that you're, that's the thing that you do. And um, the second AD, wonderful guy by the name of John Morse, uh, was coming to set to talk to the first AD about the next day's work or something. And uh, I motioned to him that we that we were we were rolling and that he couldn't come in, and he just kind of kindly stopped. And then they called cut on the walkie, and so I said, "Okay, you can go through." And he's like, "Well, did they cut?" And he obviously knew that they did because he could hear on the walkie, but I didn't say it. And um, and he was like, well, you know, and he just kind of pulled me to the side and very like calmly and gently just like, you know, I might not have known this, but like whenever that he calls it out on the walkie, you should be echoing those things. And he was just so gracious and kind in the way that he told me that I was not doing it right, but and, and, how, and how to do it. I have always carried that with me because there's going to be people that make mistakes. They might be, be newer and have less experience, but there is a way to talk to people that will get them to follow you to the ends of the earth. 
it really resonated with me the way that he handled that moment. And I've always tried to carry that with me, with my teams. We talk to people and each other with respect and kindness. It can go a very long way. That is so wonderful. Beautifully said, man. What a great way to end the conversation and send our listeners off with that uh, in their minds and in their hearts to, to lead well, to stay organized, and to be the best that they can be and help those on their team do the same. As a parting thought, Ian, what do you love most about your job and your specific role in production? I think that for me, what drew me to film and television production initially and what's kept me there is just the communal aspect of it. It's not something that with very few exceptions can be done by one person or even two people. I mean, you have your low budget things or experimental things where somebody gets out there and they make, you know, the iPhone movie that they did all by themselves. But like, it is a group effort and you have to do it together. At the end of the day, you, go, you have these tough days, you've got long days, you go through the, the muck and the mire of production together. And when you come out on the other end of it, you have accomplished something as a group. And there's not a whole lot of industries out there that, that work that way. Um, and I think it's just, it's creative. You know, it's an opportunity to tell stories, which I think are powerful in a way to not only entertain, but also bring people together on the exhibition side, whether it's in their living room or at the theater. We get to make that. We get to be a part of that process. So I think that is a, is a privilege. It is a honor to be able to be part of it. But to be able to do it with other people, I don't know, I just get a huge amount of pleasure to be part of that process. It's special. Amazing, man. Everything you've been saying is so eloquent. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ian, for such an awesome and insightful conversation. Well, thank you again to you both for, for having me. It was, a, it was a real pleasure. And that's Taillights, folks, on another episode of Call Sheet. This show is brought to you by Elgin Entertainment. It is produced and hosted by Kiku Terasaki and me, Bryce Sirier, with support from our associate producer, Nathaniel Duber. I'm also the editor of the show, and our theme music is by Robert Mai. Our guest today was second AD Ian Campbell. We talked about how to stay organized during production, including managing set paperwork, communication with cast and crew, and what to look for when hiring your team. Thanks again, listeners, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep coming back for more. I'd just like to remind you, if you'd be so kind, please share the show with a friend or colleague and take just one minute to leave us a review in whatever podcast app you use. We really appreciate your feedback and support. Also, if you want to suggest a topic that you'd like to hear discussed in a future episode, please send it in. You can email us at callsheetpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at callsheetshow. You should also check out our website for the latest content and news. That's callsheetshow.com. There are links to all of that and additional resources in this episode's show notes, so be sure to check those out. Remember, we'll be on a brief hiatus during the month of October, but we'll be back the first Thursday in November. In the meantime, folks, good luck and go make it happen.